You're listening to the Developmentor Podcast, hosted by Grant Ingersoll. We have one goal on the show, to help you build a successful career in tech, no matter where you're from or where you're going. We do this by showcasing interesting people working across a variety of roles in tech and deep dive into their why. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com or follow us on Twitter at developmentor. One of these days on Developmentor, we're going to do a study on the number of computer programmers who have physics and or math degrees, as I'm pretty sure there is a high correlation between those two fields and computer programming. In fact, today's guest holds both a math and a physics degree and is, as the lead-in implies, also a computer programmer who turned into an engineer manager who then turned into a chief technology officer. Along the way to that lofty position, he's worked in finance, mortgages, and music for the likes of Graham Capital, Spotify, Google, and Better.com. He's also the first person, I think, that I'm aware of on this show who has made that leap from intern directly into engineering management. So stay tuned as we catch up with Eric Bernardson. Yeah, thanks for having me here, Grant. Minor correction, I actually did not make quite the jump from intern to engineering manager. I think Spotify early days was, was a interesting place. Uh, people didn't really care about titles and people, you know, moved around very quickly. So I think there was a few months where I uh, was an engineering, a software engineer and then became a manager. Uh, that's great, Erica. Uh, I appreciate that. And, and yes, welcome to the show. And thanks so much for joining me. LinkedIn, like you said, doesn't fully capture it. And I, and I can imagine and appreciate those early days of a startup like Spotify it was kind of loose. So why don't you fill us in a, l- a little bit more and give us a proper introduction to yourself? Totally. Uh, so right now I am the CTO at Better, which is a startup in the mortgage industry. Uh, I started about five years ago when I think we were like eight people or something like that. Back in a small building or small office, we had like no clue what we're doing. And now we're about 1,800 people. So it's been an interesting growth. I manage about 85 people right now. So, so a lot of what I'm doing is like basically recruiting and hiring and trying to find smart people, making sure people are happy and productive, working on the things that uh, you know, the business needs and that are valuable to us. Try to code like very occasionally when I have time. Uh, I still love coding, but sadly, I don't have that much time to do it as much. Uh, before here, I was at uh, Spotify for seven years. I think that's Pretty much most of my career, either Spotify or better. I started at Spotify in 2008, back in Stockholm, as an intern doing my master's thesis, uh, straight out of school. And then I joined uh, formally in 2009, started managing a data team pretty quickly, very small data team. And then sometimes in 2011, I moved to New York, uh, worked in finance for a few months. It was interesting, but I, I missed Spotify, so I went back to Spotify and then ran a machine learning team at Spotify, built a lot of music recommendation system at Spotify for about three or four years, and then decided I want to try something new, so that's why I ended up at Better. That's my background. Ah, that's fantastic. number of extra questions there. I want to kind of go back to a little bit of the early days here. And What is it about that physics and math? And is, If I'm understanding correctly, you were doing physics and math as a degree, but then also doing programming and doing your master's thesis at Spotify. Is that right? I grew up programming. So I think I've been coding since I was eight and I got in, involved in 
various programming competitions at some point in high school. I uh, went to IOI. I don't know if that's something people recognize, but I uh, competed in a few of those. And then at some point, like I, you know, I thought a lot about like, what should I do in school? Like I felt like, you know, programming is something like I love doing and I'd rather like study something that adds that where I can learn something I don't know. And I ended up studying physics. And, and the reason wasn't really that like, I felt like I wanted to work with physics. It's just that, you know, a lot of smart people seem to go into physics. It felt like a good sort of well-rounded feel. I'm very happy actually I, I chose it. It turned out that like a great mental toolbox, like there's almost like so many different things you learn, like whether it's like, you know, solid state physics or control theory or complex analysis or things like that. And, and you know, price is like super valuable toolbox that later when I started doing machine learning statistics uh, turned out to be super valuable. Yeah, that's interesting. I know in my own experience with machine learning and, and talking to one of my good friends and it actually was uh, on the podcast earlier, Jake Mannix was a uh, physicist as well. I think he was all, all the way through to getting his PhD in it. How many of the math techniques that underpin physics are also used in machine learning? Has that been your experience as well? Yeah, totally. And, and I think back then, like, you know, 2007, you know, seven, eight, when I was still in like my last few years of school, like there wasn't as much of like a machine learning hype as there is now. And so, you know, machine learning back then was a very small field. And, and so coming from like a field as physics, which is like very computationally and theoretically, like it has a lot of math and programming. I, I think that was really advantageous when I started doing uh, machine learning back in 2008, 2009. Yeah, a very data-rich environment. I know even in my intern days back in the 1990s, I interned at a couple of places that were doing really heavy physics work. And it was all, you know, basically large-scale matrices and and things that are all underpinning what we do in, in machine learning these days. So <laughs> Probably a lot of Fortran or something like that, right? Like there's still a lot of that going on. Uh, not the thing I put on my resume, but yes, indeed, my first programming language that I got paid for was Fortran. So <laughs> I, I'm curious then somehow you had this internship at Spotify. I would love to hear about those early days because, you know, obviously this has been a, a hugely successful company. Yeah, it was weird. It's pretty common in Sweden to do internships at companies, like you, like a basically, or, or to to write your master's thesis at companies. So, so I, I knew a lot of the early engineers at Spotify, and it was a lot of people from my school who did well on programming competitions. Uh, so, so it was you know they were a couple of years older than me. Uh, so it's a bunch of people that I looked up to and I kind of want to work with. And at that time, I was pretty interested in machine learning. And so I managed to convince the, the then CTO at Spotify, like, why don't I join and I'll write my master's thesis about music recommendation systems. And he thought it was a great idea. So I spent six months basically sitting at the Spotify office in the early days, messing around with different algorithms. Basically, like, I, I didn't really know much, to be honest. Like, I, I'm very glad they took the chance on me. But, you know, the truth be told, like, I don't think I like, had like a, a great formal background in statistics and machine learning, but it sort of worked out. I, I realized there was a lot of value in like using these methods and I built a lot of algorithms that later turned out to be quite useful for Spotify. Hmm. So I did that for six months and then I was offered a full-time job at Spotify early 2009, took it, pivoted away pretty quickly because I realized there was more foundational stuff to do than like music recommendations. So I spent a couple of years focusing more on just like building the data platform and serving, you know, various data across the company and, and started managing pretty quickly. So I did that for a few years and then I moved to New York later. I'm curious to pick on a little bit of a thread there, which is like, how did you know the CTO? And is there anything actionable for our listeners who 
are maybe not sure how to land an internship or, or to make that first contact like what you did? I got introduced to the connections I had at my university through those people who were early at Spotify from programming competitions. I think, I mean, in general, like Spotify wasn't my first internship. I, th- I think if there's anything I'm like happy I did was I had a lot of other internships as well throughout university. Uh, so I worked at a telco for a while for about a year. I actually took a six months sabbatical from university and worked at a telco. I worked at Google for a brief period as an intern, also for about six months. Uh, I tried a lot of different stuff. And, and so I was pretty happy that I did all those internships. I learned a lot about like what kind of companies I liked and didn't like and what types of jobs I enjoyed. And the Spotify thing, I think, was more luck that I ended up doing. The other ones, like working at this telco and working at Google, I applied myself. Like I found those companies online and you know I didn't know anyone and I just applied and got the job. Yeah, nice. Uh, well, as they say, you'd rather be lucky than good, right? So you talked a little bit about the recommendation systems. Uh, I'd be curious, you know, so you've worked on them, I think, a, a few different places. And obviously, these are a pretty critical part of most consumer-facing, like music, e-commerce, services, etc., could you lay a little bit of the groundwork for like our listeners who perhaps want to get into that field? What should they study? Where should they learn? What are perhaps some projects they could pick up uh, and look at uh, in this space that might be helpful for them? Back then, it was a lot about like looking at what was going on in the Netflix price. Like that was what was kind of driving the research. And, and there's still a lot of like interesting papers coming out of the, you know back from then that still sort of work out hold up pretty well. Now, of course, it's all deep learning and GPUs and, and the world looks very different in terms of machine learning. But a lot of the things are still similar. Like one of the things that I discovered pretty quickly, I think I was lucky to sort of discover this thread and, and you know, I kept pulling in it and, and sort of worked out really well was a lot of latent vector models turn out to work really well. So the idea is like you, you have all this data about like who listens to what, like billions and billions of streams, and you try to find representations in what's called a latent space of all the users and all the tracks and maybe also playlists and artists and other things. So you have this latent space of, say, 40 dimensions. So basically what you're trying to do is find vectors for everyone. And you do that in an unsupervised way because you don't have labels. So so you basically try to find vectors that predict who's going to listen to what track. And then using those vectors now, you can do all these recommendation operations. Uh, I don't know if that makes any sense, but uh, I think... If you dig a little bit deeper, like matrix factorization, latent vector models, vector representations, I think those should be some keywords. Maybe you can Google and try to find a lot of, I think there's a lot of resources. Yeah, that's fantastic. I know, well, having come myself from this space, I know at least a chunk of our listeners that will make sense too. But uh, like Eric said, just go Google. You know, at the end of the day, a lot of this stuff comes down to matrix math. So for somebody who wants to get into this space, you know, really honing up on on matrix work would, would be a good recommendation. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. And, and that's not to say you need to be like, you know, I actually almost flunked my first like linear algebra class. Like, you know, you have to know like what, what is a matrix and a vector. And that's pretty much it. The, the, the more work is actually on the statistics and like probability theory side, I would say. Yeah, for sure. And then a lot of these days, the libraries themselves, like there's a big difference between implementing a novel recommendation system, right? And just consuming a third party's library that does recommendations. Yeah, there's probably a whole bunch of them. I honestly don't even know. It's been so many years now. Like I left Spotify <laughs> five years ago. So I'm sure there's a lot of open source projects to do, to do recommendations these days that are great. Yeah, and I definitely want to talk about some of the different industries you've worked on and certainly kind of the current part. But I'd also like to pick up on one thread real quick, which is 
you know, in, in addition to moving across some of these industries, right, you've also moved across countries. I think, you know, you did some internships in Switzerland, you're in New York, you're from Sweden. What has working internationally meant for you in your career? Cultures are different. Like, I, I don't have that much work experience in outside of New York or outside of America in a way. Uh, most of my professional life has been in, in the U.S. In fact, my, like, business Swedish is terrible. Like, I can hardly speak about business topics in Swedish. I don't know. Like, there's different cultural things, right? Like, Sweden is very, like, consensus-driven and people sort of like to argue until, like, everyone agrees. Like, in the U.S., it's like, let's do this. Okay. People in the U.S. like to talk. I, I think it took me, like, five years or... I still struggle sometimes to say things in meetings. Like, I don't even know how people do it. Like, everyone's just, like, seemingly just, like, talking and there's, like, no gaps in between to, like, interject things. So, you know, there's, like, things I've had to learn. But, you know, I think we're more similar than we're different. So I haven't had any, like, major cultural shocks, like, moving across those cultures. But I think also they were partly shaped in a way by, like, you know, Silicon Valley culture. And, you know, it's all probably pretty global at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think that's been my experience as well. Although I haven't lived abroad and worked abroad, but I tend to work with a lot of different teams across the world. And you kind of develop your own language within the company anyways, right? <laughs> Probably the hardest part, I bet, is just simply dealing with time zones. <laughs> Never mind all the cultures, you, you still can't get around the physics of uh, the earth circling, rotating and having time zones and all that kind of stuff. Well, so then let's talk a little bit about this shift. You know, I think you mentioned about five years ago, you made this leap into the startup, you took on the CTO role. It sounds like the company has been, you know, pretty wildly successful, at least for a startup. And like you said, you're about 1,800 people. How did you know it was the right time to make that move? So you're at Spotify. Spotify is pretty successful at this point, right? I think it's public. and It wasn't public at that point. Spotify went public 2018. And so, I mean, a lot of the reason why I don't join better was actually the same reason I joined Spotify. At the time I joined Spotify, I had an offer from Google. Like Google wanted me to join. And I turned it down enjoy this, you know, for a lot of people, you know, friends and family, like a complete random music startup. And everyone thought it was stupid for doing that. And, you know, I get why they thought it was stupid. But, you know, I, I thought what I saw on Spotify was a lot of really smart people that I wanted to work with on interesting problems. And I thought to myself, like, you know, I'll give it six months, a year and see what happens. And, you know, if not, and at least I'd probably learn a lot of things. And then I spent seven years there and, and, you know, went through this journey of like an extremely fast growing consumer company. And I think, one of the takeaways that I had at Spotify was that, you know, fast growing companies is the best way to learn. Like the faster growth rate of Spotify, the faster my personal growth rate was like, there's a very clear correlation. You know, I, I've learned a tremendous amount of stuff, but this company is pretty big now. And, and I feel like there's a lot of value that I could bring, you know, if I could join a small company and do this thing over again. And I was young enough. I didn't have kids back then. This is 2014, 2015 that I thought like, I should do this again. You know, I was looking for like CTO roles or like, you know, pretty high up roles, of, like very small stage companies where I could take a lot of stuff I learned at Spotify and like go through the same growth journey again. And I think also like, you know, being at Spotify like is quite empowering. I mean, obviously I was pretty lucky in many ways, but I felt when I joined Spotify, it's like we're a bunch of random people in Sweden, like trying to make something work. And like seven years later, we're like a, you know, fairly successful multinational company. And like, I would go to work and like see people on the subway using my product. I got that feeling that I can make a difference. And so, and, and so I was looking around for different opportunities. I got in touch with the CEO better and realized like, this is a very large opportunity. Like Morgan, she's extremely broken. And I was extremely impressed with the early team, like just super impressed and blown away. And I figured, you know what, like I'll do the same thing again. Like I'll join a small team 
that I respect and hopefully goes through the same journey again. Five years later, I'm very happy I, I did that. But you know, at that time, like everyone thought I was crazy for doing that move again. Like, why are you joining a, such a successful company, Spotify, to join some random mortgage company? Everyone, everyone thought it was crazy, and you know, but I'm happy I did it. Yeah, when well, the reality is, you probably were fully vested at Spotify or pretty close as well. So, in some ways, you've captured all the upside of Spotify at that point. I mean, certainly, but like, I, like if there's one thing I, I tell people, it's like you should optimize for like human capital plus financial capital. In the Spotify, probably worked like both of them worked in, in against their favor. I'd like, you know, better, you know, offered both like you know more equity upside and more growth opportunities. But like, I think in general, like you know, that's the math you should do taking a role like you should optimize both for especially when you're young you want to optimize far more for your human capital because right. it pays dividend over a lifetime well and, and like you said i think that the sweet spot you've described is the people you work with plus the technology you get to work on like if you're going to go join a startup you shouldn't just do it because of one or the other you should really look for both Although there's some people who certainly will just say hey i've worked with that person before and i want to continue to work there and I'm in. Yeah, I think actually, like to me, it boils down to like two things. Like, do you feel like this is product is something you believe in that makes sense? You know, because I think it's hard to be excited about something that you don't think makes sense. But the more important thing is like, do you want to work with these people? Do you feel like you can learn things from these people? Uh, and that to me is the, by far the most important thing, especially when you're young, because that's that's going to determine your growth rate. Right. So no matter how good the people are, like if you didn't care about mortgages at all and you know, then you wouldn't want to be in that business. Exactly. Right. Like, you know, if I met like the smartest people I've ever met and, you know, and they're starting a startup to, you know, do, make shampoo for dogs, like I wouldn't be excited because I don't have a dog and like, I don't think the market is very big. And like, I don't know how I have a comparative advantage in that industry. And so, and that's like, it's something I noticed a lot, like in New York at that time, like 2015, when I was looking for something to do, like there was a lot of like startups that were like weird apps and games and stuff like that. And I just felt like it didn't really quite have that, you know, market opportunity. Later, I noticed like better, I felt like there's actually a real market here, like a real consumer problem to be solved. Yeah, for sure. Having just taken out a mortgage, I don't know, six months ago, I can certainly relate to the pain there. Well, so I'm, I'm curious. So now this time around, you're the CTO, you've grown, sounds like your team's about 80, overall companies, 1800. Compare and contrast, you mentioned, you know, like this learning curve at both companies. Reflect a bit more on some of the key lessons and skills that you've gained in going through this now twice. It's startups are funny places, right? They're like almost like different companies every year, and and so I think that's part of why the growth rate and like the learning rate is so high. Like early on, you're kind of figuring out like what to do. You have like no clue, and you're just almost like throwing spaghetti against the wall. I think one of the key things I've learned that's probably the most important thing is that how much recruiting matters. Uh, both at Spotify and at Better, especially at Better, because I was a CTO. When I joined Better, I basically said, told the CEO that I think 98% of my value in the first couple of years is going to be who I hire. And I basically spent like 80%, 90% of my time just talking to people, trying to get people, which was kind of hard because we're like an unknown, like random mortgage startup. That's like probably one key takeaway is like, it's just the insane amount of time you have to spend on recruiting early in a startup. It gets a little bit less like once you get, you know, a couple of years in, but if there's anything you need to do early on, it's just like hire like very, very good people. And that's very hard. It takes a lot of time. You're not just hiring for skill necessarily. You're also, you want people who can deal with risk. 
you know, you, you want people who can deal with uncertainty. <laughs> it takes a very special type of personality to want to join a startup, I think. Drill down on that a little bit more of like, what do you look for when you're hiring people? And, and perhaps how has that changed for you as you've grown the team? I'll tell you what I look for in a company. I'm not saying like that necessarily applies to every company. I think every company is a little bit different, but you know, the things I look for, strong set of like core technical skills. Like, you know, I'm not going to compromise on that. Like I want people to have like a few programming languages to reasonably fluent in and like, you know, not have to like go to Stack Overflow for everything. I mean, I go to Stack Overflow mm-hmm. probably 10 times a day, but like, I think there has to be a certain fluency and, you know, knowing what like standard tech stacks look like and how to build things and things like that. Moving beyond like technical excellence, the, the biggest thing I look for is, is I think like being a little bit entrepreneurial, like the culture at better and the culture that I generally think works best at startup is to give people big business problems. Like I have like no interest as a CTO to sit down with people and tell them, you know, you need to add a table to the database here and, you know, and add an endpoint that reads from this table. And like, I, I want to give people a, a business problem. Like, go integrate with this vendor because we think it's going to be useful to the business and like do that. And, you know, I don't care if it takes like a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Like I want people to have that sort of drive and the, the motivation and the sense of like what's the most important for the business that they can, you know, work on that autonomously for, for quite some time. So I think that's probably the most important thing that I look for. I look for people that are also like autonomous. I think it's quite important that people can self-organize and think about what's best for the business. And, you know, again, I don't want to necessarily like be super micromanaging. Like, I don't want to tell people everything they should do. Aspirationally, the like, culture I always wanted to create is like a culture where people come in every morning and they just ask themselves, like, what can I do for the business? And they just do that, right? And it's like, maybe sounds a little bit naive, but I think like, that's like the sort of platonic ideal of like what I want to get to. It's like people just like self-organizing to solve every issue. And that's like, in a way, like kind of what we had at Spotify. It was like extreme at Spotify in the early days. Like, I, I don't necessarily encourage people to go to this extreme, but like at Spotify you know, in the early days for the first year, like no one told me who my manager was and no, no one told me a single thing about what to do. Hmm. So I, I did things that I thought would be valuable to the business. And I think ultimately ended up being pretty valuable to the business. And, uh, and I think there's a lot to be said about like, you know, hiring those people who can handle that amount of uncertainty and then trying to self-organize and figure out what to do. My approach has always been pretty similar, which is I want people who want to figure it out. You know, it's interesting though. I'm curious kind of, this is almost CTO to CTO here, but like developing the skills to test for that in your process. I'm curious, what are, what are some things that have actually helped you test for that? Figure it out of this, if you will. It's super hard because I think there's also like a, a lot of bad ways to sort of, you know, do like cultural fit you know type assessments and you know it could backfire and like it's really hard to be objective and things like that but i mean like one of the things i look for is like you know for instance i i believe a lot like you know people to my point about people being entrepreneurial and caring about what the business needs like i i I try to dig down into like you know what are people's motivations and like what are they excited about and you know and and there's a group of people you know who maybe their like desire in life is to you know go super deep on a technical topic and be the world's leading expert on you know disk drivers or GPUs or closure or, or whatever it is. And like probably those people would be better at a big company where they can like be a small part of, you know, a big team or, you know, solve like some very detailed problem. Uh, but probably those people are not the people that I need. And, and so I need people who like do whatever it takes. Like, you know, some types of technical problems may require like going super deep, but a lot of technical problems like require talking to people or, or you know, assessing vendors or, or figuring things out. So that's like one way that I've discovered that sort of works on like placing people on that spectrum between like tools oriented people and like goals oriented people. Like 
And I imagine too, you know, as, as the team grows, you know, like one of the things that happens is you start to hire more specialists, right? Like, you know, who you need when you're 10 people versus who you need when you're 80 or a hundred or. You can definitely afford to hire more specialized people as you get a little bit bigger. I think in the early days, like you want to go almost like extreme uh, jack of all trades. Uh, you want to hire people who can do, you know, front end and back end and DevOps and maybe even data and I don't know, like product management. I don't even know. You know, they don't have to be the world's best at any of those things, but you don't know from one day to another what types of things you're going to need. There's a lot of volatility and like the types of things you're going to need. And also like a lot of things you're going to solve for are like, you know, weird business problems that require like thinking about all those things at the same time. But, you know, you're totally right. Like as you get bigger, you can definitely afford a little bit more specialization. And sometimes you even need somebody who can, you know, put on a button down shirt and show up in a meeting and give a presentation on why the tech stack matters. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious too, just uh, you mentioned, you know, you were looking for a CTO role. I mean, I think one of the things many engineers struggle with is, you know, this, hey, how do I stay technical versus how do I, you know, climb the, the quote unquote ladder? Should I become a manager? Should I try to get a CTO gig? What was your thought process in looking for something that allowed you to make that leap? I never identified as a manager. And so, so maybe it's weird that I'm a CTO, but I think to me, it's always been a matter of like, how can I have the biggest impact? And, and I realized at some point in my career, you know, I was an IC like building things, but you know, I realized at some point in my career that like the best way to make a bigger impact is actually have a team and to work with the team. And, you know, that applies on every level. And at some point I realized like, you know, I became an engineering manager and then I saw people around me who I felt like, you know, they were doing an okay job as a director or whatever, or as a CTO or VP. But like, I felt like I would love to try to do what they're doing. Cause I felt like maybe I could do it better. I don't know. Like I, I just felt like there was an interesting challenge to, to me to like try those things. And, and, and also like for me to get that opportunity to have more of an impact. I, I never like felt like I'm a natural leader. In fact, I think like, I think it's a very dangerous thing to think about like people as like natural leader. Like I'm, I'm very introverted. I'm not very charismatic. And you know, I, I don't sort of like to be up on stage and like rally the troops and that kind of stuff. I mean, I do it, but you know, to me it was more of a challenge of like, how do I take all these ideas that I have in my head about how to run things and get leverage and get, you know, impact out of it. Cause I felt like I, I had a lot to bring to the table in terms of doing that. That's fantastic self-awareness. Uh, maybe a follow-up question on that is, you know, so you've kind of identified the things you feel like you're, you know, maybe not your first inclination. I don't want to say weakness or whatever, but maybe not your first inclination to, in terms of your leadership style. What then is the, the compliment from, for you for that? What are the things that you, you do try to focus on in terms of, you know, leading the team as, as CTO? Yeah. And, and, and maybe this is like, you know, a very like personalized thing, right? Like maybe different leaders are good at different things, right? Like I found my skill to be hiring people and then generally like, you know, paving the way and like trying to get out of their way and like, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how do I organize the team so people can be autonomous and, you know, get and ship things, right? Like I think that's the type of culture I've been doing well as a manager. There's very different types of companies, with very different types of cultures, and I probably wouldn't be as good at, at them. But like what suits my leadership style well is to focus on recruiting and how do I, you know, make sure people have the right tools and then kind of get out of the way and let them do their thing themselves. Because engineers, they generally want to do their things without being told what to do. This is my impression of like the strong engineers I found throughout my career. 
Yeah, I think that reflects my view as well. Hire smart people and then help them go in the right direction. I'm curious, you know, I think you've interviewed probably like like me at this point, you've interviewed hundreds, if not thousands of people. Give me a couple of tips, you know, like what, what should our listeners who are new into tech and, and trying to find their path, what are some actionable things that you think would help them interview better? The first thing, the most important thing is just like realizing it's a numbers game. If you want to hire the, the best people, it's going to consume nine a day of what you're doing. Sometimes I talk to CTOs and they're like, oh, I'm trying to interview. So like I'm tr- really trying to recruit people, but it's really hard. And I'm like, well, how much time are you spending? And they're like, yeah, 20%. And I don't think you're going to get the best result if you're only putting in 20%. Like I think the most impact a CTO can have in many companies is recruiting. I think it's hard in the sense that like, learning Spanish is hard, you know, billions of people learn Spanish, like, so it can't be that hard. But it clearly, it's like something that takes a lot of time. So it's hard in that sense. Uh, and, and I feel a little bit similarly with, with recruiting, it's something you just have to be willing to spend a lot of time. The other thing I think is quite important is to realize like, how bad people are at making hiring decisions. Like, I think, if there's anything I've learned, like, you know, Every like, you know, a few hundred interviews I'd make, you know, or, or that I do and, you know, the people I hire when I look back at like the people that I thought would be crushing it versus the people who are actually crushing it. The more I realize like, you know, humans are actually really bad at predicting, you know, who's going to be good and who's not going to be good. And, and, you know, that's what interviewing comes down to, right? Like you want to predict it, like how good would this person be once you hire them? Having that humility and like, you know, realizing that like this is a really noisy measurement like any measurement you're going to make uh, as a part of this process like it's going to be extremely noisy and so you need to really think about like okay how do i you know try to remove all the sort of subjectivity out of this process like how do i remove my own biases and how do i structure the interview process in order to collect different types of signal to maximize the signal to noise ratio i, I believe a lot in formalizing and structuring an interview process like trying to have the same questions asked to every single person uh, have a pretty clear measurement of like what good looks like for interviews, staying away from sort of doing, you know, relying too much on cultural assessments, unless you really know what you're doing. I think it's much better to focus on more like pure technical things. Yeah, th- those are some, you know, higher level thoughts I have on like that, that I think is a good starting point. Yeah, you and Aileen Lerner, who was one of my earlier guests on the podcast, uh, would get along uh, fabulously. I think she was a recruiter and now she's the CEO of interviewing.io. And uh, I think she said the single biggest indicator of future performance based off of resumes was the number of typos in the resumes. So. Yeah, I'm like the biggest fan in the world of her blog. I, I love her blog. I actually briefly talked to her on Twitter the other day. She, she seems pretty interesting. Yeah, she's fantastic. And uh, I would encourage our listeners here to go back and listen to that interview as well. Uh, I'm curious, uh, flipping on that interview a little bit, what tips would you give the candidates? So I think you hit well on what hiring managers should do. What are a couple of things that, you know, best behaviors, worst behaviors, whatever you want to call it in terms of candidates showing up and engaging in the best way? Probably like preparing a couple of like good questions, I think is something I wish I'd done better. And like I've done in interviews for many years, but you know, looking back, I think that's always a good idea. Thinking about what the company's looking for. I mean, it's like a dating process. Like you need to figure out like, you know, fit on both sides. And so I think, you know, candidates definitely should spend more time like also figuring out, you know, is this the right company for me? Like, you know, would I be successful here? And, you know, the right way to ask those questions. I think moving on in the interest of time, I mean, 
you know, Eric, I love to say on the show, jobs and careers aren't all sunshine and rainbows. What's the best thing about the CTO role and what's the most challenging thing about the CTO role for you? The best thing is that total ownership you have. Like if something is broken, it's kind of my fault and I can fix it. And, and then like things I learn, it's like so diverse, right? Like I learn about recruiting, I learn about like who should go to conferences and you know how to do performance reviews and like really getting a chance to think about how to make a company work from first principles. I think that's probably like the biggest learning experience for me. It's like my mandate is to make this company successful and like what do I do as a CTO and like thinking backwards from that goal, you know, what can I do today that increases the value the most of this company and, you know, as a CTO. And, and that's like really empowering, I think, and like really makes you think about like how everything fits together in this world. The worst thing is like definitely like as a programmer, there's an element of like puzzle solving and programming, right? Like, and you have this like immediate gratification of solving a tough technical challenge, right? And that can be very addictive. And I think the challenge that many people struggle with when they start managing is that crazy amount of like delayed gratification, right? Like things I do today as a CTO, I'm not going to see if it's working until you know, it could take a year, it could take two years. Like, you know, I hire someone or I give someone like a piece of advice in a performance review that I think is worthwhile for them to listen to. And it might take me a year to see if people really internalize and do something about it. And, and so having that like very long feedback loop, it can be pretty challenging. And I remember that's something I struggled with when I started managing, you know, I would kind of slip back and do a lot of IC work. And, you know, it's almost like you have this like, you know, addiction in a way, like, you know, suddenly you find yourself like 10 p.m. like writing on some critical piece of code that you definitely shouldn't do. You should have delegated a long time ago, but it's like so addicting to get back into the code and feel like you're shipping high value stuff. And, and I think that's like probably the biggest thing I miss uh, and the biggest challenge as a CTO is you need to really suppress those feelings. It's always a very surreal moment when you move up the chain, when your engineers just say, hey, Eric, stop. We've got this. You know, we love you. We think you're brilliant or whatever. But you know what? This is our day-to-day -day job. You need to do other things. <laughs> kind of in the home stretch here, Eric, you know, this show's called Developmentor. Uh, spend a moment talking about a mentor or two that you've had and, and kind of the impact and the things you've learned from them. Honestly, I probably like more times than not have no mentor. But I mean, I like looking back, like there's definitely been people that I work with that I've learned a lot about, you know, Oscar Stalda, the CTO at Spotify uh, comes to mind. Like he's someone who ran a tech team quite well. And I definitely learned a lot from, and he always had like useful perspectives. I wouldn't understand why the company was like doing a certain thing. He'd be like, you know, there's a good rational reason for it. Let's like walk through, like, how does it work? And looking back, like, you know, he, him and like a, a couple other people, like I've definitely felt like I've learned a lot from. What's been the most surprising thing to you about your career today? That thing 18-year-old Eric would look back on it or think about and be like, whoa, I did that? Yeah, I think honestly, like the fact that I'm managing 85 people, like to me, it's kind of crazy, right? Like I think I grew up like, you know, feeling like I'm going to write code and like I'm going to do it super well and that's what I'm going to do. Also like startups was something I never really thought about much. And so the fact that I'm now a CTO at a startup is kind of, weird crazy to me but um you know in those years like i discovered that like things seem to be working on so i must be doing something right so I, I think like that's probably the biggest surprise to me like looking back between like what i thought i would do versus what i'm actually doing that's fantastic wrapping it all up putting your mentor hat on what's your best career advice for somebody who perhaps wants to follow in your footsteps or get that first job in tech 
there's a lot of stuff right like i think you know one thing that i always encourage people to do is like to have a lot of internships and like try different things and you know school is like a great way to like basically defer every life decision by five years and you know not having to figure out like what you want to do with your life and so i i really did that myself i tried a lot of different things i'm very happy i ended up at spotify like it was a little bit of a luck but um looking back i think the thing i learned about that decision was you know find fast-growing companies or find companies where you think your own uh, human capital is going to grow the quickest which generally tends to be fast-growing companies uh be around smart people i tend to think startups are a great place to be for people, you may not make as much money. Like, you know, it's always a gamble. Like, you don't know, like you get equity sometimes, most times, but you don't know if it's going to be worthwhile. But, you know, when you're young, like, I think it's a better place to long-term maximize what you learn. And I would encourage everyone to consider working at a couple of startups when they're young. And then, you know, don't rule out like doing different things. Like I tried out my thing with management and it turned out like I was okay at it. And like, I keep going and, you know, things are going pretty well. And so I think sometimes I meet like really brilliant engineers who are, little bit reluctant they're like yeah i don't know like my, my previous company like all the managers were just stuck in meetings and doing this or that but you know it doesn't mean that management roles at every company looks like that uh so you know be open to doing different things in your career yeah it reminds me a bit of david epstein's book uh, range and he talks about how the you know this accumulation of different experiences is actually what really sets you up for success yeah despite kind of early pressure to specialize i think you want to go broad early and then figure out so i think that's great advice and spot on eric eric really appreciate you taking the time final question where can our listeners best learn from you follow you on social media connect with you i mean i, I blog a lot so eric E-R-I-K-B-E-R-N.com. You can find me on Twitter as well. Like I, I tweet a lot of stuff, but it, I think the blog is probably the best place to, to find a little bit more like, you know, I've actually written a lot about interviewing, a little bit less about management. I've also written a bunch of stuff about machine learning and other things like that. Lately, been a little bit less. I, I recently, you know, had my second child, but I, I'm trying to get back there and write some more blog posts. If, if you keep, keep an eye on my blog, there's going to be some more stuff coming up soon. Yeah, well, and congrats on the uh, second child. And, and for our listeners, we'll be sure to link up all of those things in the show notes. Eric, thank you again so much for taking time out of your busy day to join us. Yeah, thanks a lot. This has been fun. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Developmentor podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Even better, please leave us a review. If you want to hear older episodes, leave feedback, or sign up to be a guest, please visit us at developmentor.com. If you'd like to support the show, there are three ways you can help out. One, make a donation via Patreon. Two, if you're a software engineer looking for your next gig and wanting to practice interviewing, use our referral link to the interviewing.io platform. And three, buy your next tech book from Manning Publications using our affiliate link. All of those links can be found at developmentor.com slash support dash us. That's S-U-P-P-O-R-T dash U-S. All one word. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move one step closer to finding your path.